Thank you, young ladies. That was really, really nice. That was really, really nice. Today's scripture reading is brought to us from 
Exodus chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And they say this. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians kept in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Good morning. I'm glad to be here, and I appreciate the privilege of being able to speak with you today. But what I'd like to talk about this morning is something that I believe is very relevant to all of us, especially during the time that we're living. I want to talk about some of the details that were um, essential in the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And I believe that there are parallels between their delivery from, Egypt, from bondage of slavery and our deliverance from the bondage of sin. And um, I believe that there are parallels that are just unmistakable. And when I was preparing for this um, sermon, I found some things that I, I knew before, but I never really realized them the way I realized them when I was studying. New things came to me. And when I did this, um, I was just so excited, so excited, and, I, and so excited to the point where I feel like, man, I want to share this with people. And um, that wanting and excitedness about sharing kind of somewhat alleviates some of my nervousness about being up here. It, you know, when you really want to say something, you, you do it even though, you know. So I'd like to get right into this. First, what I'd like to do is talk about the Passover, just for a minute or two, just to have a, like a short review. Now, during the time of Christ, the Passover involved three days, which was actually three different feasts or three different memorials. On Friday, there was the Passover, then there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and then there was the Feast of First Fruits, or the Wave Sheaf, which happened to be on that Sunday. Well, through time, these three feasts became lumped together and just known as the Passover. And they were observed on the same date every year. In the year that Jesus was crucified, it was a, a Friday, a Sabbath, and a Sunday. But these were on specific dates. So they could be on a Monday, a Tuesday, or a Wednesday, or um, like a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But uh, So they, they floated through the week, just like Christmas and just like your birthday. It's not always on the same day of the year, but it's the same date. Well, on the, in the year that Jesus died, it was a Friday, a Sabbath, and a Sunday. And I believe that was a plan. I believe that it was a God thing. Jesus did everything with a plan. Everything was in its time. Now, the Passover started the Jewish year of memorials or feasts. And do you know why that would be? That would be because Jesus, Christ was the sacrifice, and that represented him, and his death, his burial, and resurrection. And that the, was the premier event. That was the whole reason for all the other four memorials that were left. 
that happened through the year, which was Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. All these feasts commemorated great events in the plan of salvation. And if a person was to understand the meanings of all these feasts, you would never, ever get your doctrine mixed up because it, the whole plan of salvation was played out through them. And um, actually, the same is true about the sanctuary service, although, it's, in my opinion, the sanctuary service had a little more detail, but I could be wrong. I, I don't know everything about the uh, feasts. Well, the descendants of Jacob were in Egypt, and they were there for about 430 years. And they were slaves to the Egyptians for a lot of that time. I'm not sure exactly how much, but they were crying out to, to God for deliverance to from that bondage. And, you know, during that time, that was a long time, at least 200 years, maybe more, I'm sure it was. But they could be wondering, well, did God really care? Does he hear me? Is he there? Does he care how much trouble I'm going through? But, you know, it was a long wait. But, yes, he did care, even though there was so much silence from heaven. But Jesus always comes through at the proper time. And, you know, the reason why Jesus is waiting is actually food for a whole other sermon. But there was, there's always reasons. Well, then one day Moses and Aaron showed up in Egypt. They met with the elders of the Israelites, and they told him that God, them that God had especially called them to um, release them from bondage and to take them to the promised land. And this is what they were to say to the people. You'll find it in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Exodus 6, 6 through 8. They said, where, or Jesus said, Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretch out with a stretched out arm and with great judgments and I will take you to me for a people and I will be your God and ye shall be you shall know that I am the Lord your God which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land concerning which I did swear to give it to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and I will give it you for an heritage I am the Lord and then you'll notice the next verse, verse 9. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. They didn't either listen or believe him, and many lost their hope or their desire for freedom. Many of the Hebrews also thought that when they were freed, they'd be freed without any special testing of their faith, without any real hardship. And how many people today, I wonder, believe that when Jesus comes, he will rapture you, his people out and take them to heaven and thereby avoid any real hardship on their part during the time of trouble or the tribulation. But the Lord doesn't always keep us from trouble, but he helps us through it. 
Well, actually, Israel was not yet prepared for deliverance. You know, when I would hear this story when I was younger and read through, I just felt like the children of Israel were just ready to go, and all they were doing was waiting for those plagues to get done, and they were going to be gone. But you know, the Israelites did not have faith in God. They didn't, and not only that, many were content to remain in bondage rather than to deal with the problems of moving to a strange land. They'd acclimated to their environment, and some of them became so much like the Egyptians that they preferred to stay in Egypt. You'll find that in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 260. You know, it was the same in Babylon, and could be the same with us. The Lord may have to stir up our nest a bit, but there were some who remained true and close to God, and they continued to have faith in him. So that was partly why the Lord didn't deliver Israel right away, but he also had to allow this situation to play out with Pharaoh. It had to drag out some, because God also wanted to save Pharaoh. Egypt also needed a show of God's power. They had some knowledge of of the true God from the Israelites being there those hundreds of years. Moses and Aaron went in to see Pharaoh. They told him what was planned, and he got mad. And he thought, oh, there might be a conspiracy going on. You know, these Israelites, there's a lot of them here, and they could really cause us some problems. So he made them work harder. He wanted to keep them busy. The Israelites began to wish that Moses and Aaron had not come. Now, you know the story. Pharaoh refused repeatedly to let them leave. The plagues fell one after another, and each plague, with each plague, Pharaoh further hardened his heart against the God and the Holy Spirit. He was given warnings before every plague came so that he could avoid the devastation, but it was unheeded. The land was decimated. Can you imagine? There were no live fish in the lakes. Actually, they probably floated all over and came up to the shore, and they probably really smell bad, especially in the hot sun, and you didn't want to be downwind of it. And then there came the frogs, and when they died, they had to be raked up in piles and burned. The whole land must have just been smelling disgusting. And then there were lice, and then there were biting flies, and then many of the animals died of an awful disease, and the plagues kept coming. Then there was a terrible hailstorm with lightning, and it says with fire, and I'm believing that means lightning. And I'm sure there was thunder. And you know, that must have been terrifying to the Egyptians because it never rained there. They didn't, if it did, it just was a mist. I mean, I, I don't believe it ever rained. And I don't know why they had roofs on their houses, probably just to keep the birds out or, you know, the hot sun off of them or whatever. But here came this hailstorm and the thunder. And a lot of times when we get storms, we kind of wonder, oh, boy, you know, this is pretty scary. And, and not only that, there was these rocks, hard and cold, that came from the sky that they probably never, ever saw before. And they were big, and it battered the trees, and it battered their houses. And um, it made it so that the trees were broken down. And if that wasn't enough, then locusts came... And the locust ate every green thing that was left in the country. 
Only the land of Goshen was untouched. And then came terrible darkness. After all, Pharaoh, after all this, Pharaoh forbade Moses to even enter the palace anymore. He didn't want to hear any more about this stuff on pain of death. But God had one more message for Pharaoh, and Moses had to deliver it. God had been patient with that heathen king. Plague after plague had been stubbornly resisted, and he still would not let Israel go. You know, Christ tries to reach us through many means. And, you know, he, he tries and he tries, but there comes a time when the Lord has to just get tough. And, you know, I appreciate a God of love, but I respect and trust a God who sets limits. Amen. Now the ultimate plague was to come. Moses told Pharaoh that at midnight all the firstborn of the Egyptians would die if they didn't let Israel go. He said that there would be mourning and crying like there had never been heard and that all the people high and low would come to him and beg him to send all Israel out of their land. But Pharaoh obstinately refused. You know, you could wonder, how could Pharaoh, the leader of his country, be so stubborn and so unfeeling? How could he have allowed so much suffering to come to the people, and the animals even, of the realm, when it was his job to protect them? His nation was all but destroyed. You know, God sends us cautions and warnings and rebukes in various ways. He gives to each one of us an opportunity to correct our errors before they become fixed in our character. But if we refuse to be corrected, God allows us to make our choices. But with the continued rejection, the heart becomes hardened against the influence of the Holy Spirit, and we become numb to the Spirit of God. And, you know, that sounds to me like, a lot like the unpardonable sin. It's a time when we think sin is okay, and we don't think it's dangerous. And that's actually the point where uh, Pharaoh, that Pharaoh got to. According to Romans 9.17, it says that God raised up Pharaoh so that through him, God's name would be declared through all the earth. And I believe his purpose did come true, but probably not the way God intended it to, to happen. Who can estimate the power for good that Pharaoh would have been if his will had been yielded to the Lord? You know, we're told that Moses was regarded with awe in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in, in the sight of the Egyptian people, but that it was Pharaoh and the priests, the religious people, who were causing the problem, who would let, him go, let them go. They were the ones who opposed to the last the demands of Moses. Well, so Moses came out of the palace, and he called a meeting of the elders and the people of Israel. He had some explicit instructions concerning the impending departure of the Israelites from Egypt and some important information on how to be protected from the coming plague. This one could involve them, and I'm sure everyone listened intently. He commanded that every family must slay a lamb or a kid without blemish. Some of this is probably review for you, but there are some things that I think maybe we hadn't thought about. 
Then they had to collect the blood and with a bunch of hyssop sprinkle the blood on the two side posts and the upper door posts of their homes. And then when the angel, destroying angel, would fly through at midnight, he would not enter that house and slay their firstborn. Then they were to roast the lamb and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They weren't supposed to relax and eat this meal with their slippers and their house coat on and their feet up. They were to be dressed with their shoes on, their loins girded, and their staff in hand. They were to eat quickly, and this was to be called the Lord's Passover. This day shall be unto you a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Now, imagine yourself there. What if you were a firstborn? What if you were a parent? Wouldn't you get that biggest bunch of hyssop you could find and get the, and to fling the most amount of blood you could on that doorpost? Even paint the door? I mean, another thing, they were to close the door and not to go outside for anything for the whole night. Now, I can't imagine what that night was like. They had to be ready to leave. They also had to get packed. They didn't have much notice. But if they were watching the signs, they would have had plenty of time to pack. They might have lived in the very same house all their life. What would they take with them? What would they leave? And what did all these specific instructions mean? You know, God was making a memory He wanted these events to be celebrated and remembered by all of Israel and taught to their children and their children's children throughout their generations. Now a word about the Passover, and this is where my favorite subject comes in. The Passover was to be both a memorial and a type. It was to point backward and forward backward to the deliverance of the, of the Egypt, from Egyptian bondage and forward to the greater deliverance in freeing God's people from the slavery of sin. And there will be another journey, a journey to heaven. What did the sacrificial lamb represent? I think I asked it before. It represented Jesus, our only hope of salvation. Paul said, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That's in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Now, did you notice? It wasn't enough just to slay the lamb. It was not enough for Jesus just to die for us. As important as that was, they had to paint the blood on the doorposts. And here is another example of the fact that Christ's blood had to be applied to have value. Jesus shed his blood for us. He died to save everyone. He did everything that he could to save us. But we need to apply his blood. And most Christians, I could be wrong, but I believe most Christians just let Christ's blood fall to the ground. Once you accept Jesus, your job is done. But I believe this is kind of where we diverge in doctrine from many other Christian denominations. How do we apply his blood? 
in the same way they did. By trusting in God's word, by acts of faith in his promises, and by obedience. And this is what caused the angel to pass over. They trusted in God's word, but they didn't say, but, but they had to obey. They had to take that blood and put it on their doorposts. If they didn't do it, they could have trusted all they wanted, and it wouldn't have done anything. The hyssop was to be used to sprinkle the blood, and that was a symbol of purification. And David prayed, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Psalms 51.7. So, the lamb was to be eaten. How do we eat the lamb? We receive spiritual strength and nourishment from him by studying his word. Christ said, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. That's in John, 50, John 6, 53 and 54. The word of the Lord nourishes every nerve and cell in us. It should become part of us. It's like, like when we eat the food, the nutrients go to every part of your body. And that's what God's word does. And when that happens, the power of Christ changes us. And that's reminiscent of the communion service. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen says, Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. And I'm sure you're all familiar with the unleavened bread. Before subsequent Passovers, the Hebrews had to get every speck of leaven out of their houses. And as you remember, leaven represents sin. Not only sin, it's the bad thoughts. It also includes hypocrisy and materialism and greed and flattery and worldly-mindedness and injustice and on and on. So how does that apply to us? We need to get the leaven out of our house heart. We need to diligently search every corner of our hearts for anything that might be lurking there that offends God. Now, did you notice, and this is part that was exciting to me, it, it was like finding hidden treasure. You know, it's, it's imp impressive. When you learn something, when you study God's word and you learn it for yourself, not something you got from a book or someone told you or you got from a sermon or whatever. It's just, it just... When I found out, I didn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> I thought, oh, wow, this is so neat. And I thought, well, I want to share it. So this is what it was. Before the children, before the people could obtain their freedom from Egypt and make the trip to the promised land, there were three things that they had to do. They were required to do this. And, the, and these were things that Jesus did not do for them. They were given a part to play in their salvation. They had to paint the blood. They had to prepare and eat the lamb. They had to clean out the leaven. And I'm not mentioning kill the lamb because our sins killed the lamb, actually. And um, Jesus died, died voluntarily for us. But how do these meanings apply to us? Well, there are three things that we are required to do before we can receive our freedom from the bondage of sin and make our trip to heaven. We have to paint the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus offers forgiveness of sin. And we need to confess our sins so that he can do that. We must apply it by accepting him as our Savior and our Redeemer, and we have to trust that his blood has the power to save us. 
By eating the lamb. Okay, that means by bringing God's word into our heart and our life. We need to study God's word to allow it to change us, to change our heart. And then there's the cleaning out of the leaven. It is making a diligent effort to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in cleaning out all sin from our heart and depending on victory through Jesus. And you know, all of these, every one of these, includes obedience. They had to obey when they painted the the blood. They did it by faith, but they still had to do it. By eating the lamb, they did that by faith, but it was something they had to do. They had to clean out the leaven, and that, okay, that was something they had to do too. And this is how we are saved, in a nutshell. God expects our cooperation in the salvation process. He gave us duties that he cannot do for us, and we should perform these duties out of love and thankfulness. All of this is in the communion service, which is reminiscent of the Passover for the Christian. Eating the lamb, the bread of life. The blood covers our sins and cleanses us. Then there's the unleavened bread, which is turning our turning away from sin. You know, this type is so perfect. The Lord is such a genius. How he put this together is just impressive. This graphically defines the part that he plays and the part we play in the salvation process. And, you know, both sides are critical. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why Easter only celebrates the death and the resurrection of Jesus while his, his rest in the tomb is completely ignored? You know, I've wondered that through the years. I thought, well, maybe it's because it's the Sabbath that he did that on. But, you know... I believe it's because that Sabbath was the day of unleavened bread. It was the feast of unleavened bread. And that represents the changed and holy life. It represents sanctification. Sanctification is a teaching that is, from my understanding, from what I've talked to other Christians, it's essentially missing in most of the other religions. It's like Jesus did it all. Um, We have no obligations or responsibilities, but just accept Christ, and that's it. But do you know, Friday, Jesus' death, that was justification. Sabbath, the removing of sin from our hearts and our life, is sanctification. And the Sunday when Jesus rose was glorification. John 19.31 mentions a high day. Now, I used to drive a lot when I was going to to work and back. And I would listen to Christian stations. And there was a talk, a question and answer thing going on. And the pastor would answer the questions that people called in. And one of the people called in this question. They they wanted to know, what is a high day? And the pastor did not know what it was. He gave some ridiculous answer. But I thought, shame on you. He had no idea. And I thought, I can tell you. But anyway, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a ceremonial Sabbath. It was to be kept just exactly the same as the seventh-day Sabbath was kept, no matter what day of the week it fell on. But during the time when Jesus died, that day Feast of Unleavened Bread fell on the Sabbath. 
and that made it a high day. Well, actually, the Passover, the day Jesus died, was not a ceremonial Sabbath. The day Jesus rose was not a ceremonial Sabbath. But the day Jesus was in the tomb on the Sabbath, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a ceremonial Sabbath kept exactly the same way as a Seventh-day Sabbath. So you had the Seventh-day Sabbath, and you had the ceremonial Sabbath set right on top, and that made it a high day. Hence, a high day. Anyway, so, you know, that just tells me how much the Lord esteems sanctification. He esteems our changed life, our becoming more like him, our putting sin out of our life, our becoming perfect in his sight was so important to him. Not only that, the Feast of Unleavened Bread actually lasted a week. It started on that Sabbath, which was the day Jesus was in the tomb. And it lasted for seven days. So the very next Sabbath was actually another high day because it fell on the Sabbath again. And it's like sanctification, his feast, it's like two bookends of sacredness and closed the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that is the day that is ignored by most people. And I believe that's not only because it was the Sabbath. I believe it had to do with sanctification. It's something that is just missing in in religious people today. You know, another thing is in in the Passovers that were after that, when they were celebrated during the time of the wilderness wanderings, If you ate leavened bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you were to be cut off from the congregation. That means you were to be sent out of the camp, which meant certain death. That says, well, I'm I'm just wondering, okay, how does that apply to us? If um, If we choose sin or we carelessly allow it to stay in our lives, we will eventually die with it. There are lots of doctrinal truths in God's, found in God's instructions to the Hebrews before they entered, were to enter the land of Canaan that we need to take to heart also. Now, the rest of the story. The Hebrews now trusted in God's power, and they knew that he could protect them. And they had a great respect and a great awe for Moses, and now they were willing to leave. Now, imagine yourself there. You're in your little clay or stone house. The candle is burning low. In the dim light, you look around. Your bags are packed and standing by the door. Your staff is leaning against the wall right next to them. You think to yourself, did we miss anything? Did we follow all the directions fully? You rehearse all the instructions over and over in your mind. You want to open that door and look to make sure that the blood is still there, but you can't because the door is shut and it was not to be opened all night. That's like the close of probation. And you wonder, is it midnight yet? You pray and you watch your firstborn and you cannot help but feel a terrible uneasiness and anticipation. When will the angel fly by my door? This could answer to the time of Jacob's trouble, which comes after the door is closed and it lasts until midnight when Jesus comes. No dwelling in Israel was visited by that death angel. The sign of the blood, the sign of the Savior's protection was on the doors, and they were sealed, and the destroyer entered not. 
They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. At midnight, there was a great cry in Egypt, and there was not one house where there was not one dead. All the firstborn in the land, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the criminal who was in the dungeon, had been smitten by the destroyer. Through the vast realm of Egypt, the shrieks and the wails of the mourners filled the air. With blanched faces and trembling limbs, they stood aghast at the overpowering horror. Pharaoh remembered how he had once exclaimed, Who is Jehovah that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not Jehovah. Now his pride was humbled in the dust. And he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people and be gone. And bless me also, like have mercy on me. This last plague brought Pharaoh to his knees. The royal counselors and all the people pleaded for the Hebrews to please leave as soon as possible. They felt that if they stayed any longer, there wouldn't be anyone left in Egypt that was living. Well, the Hebrews were ready to go. They were just waiting for the signal. Their loins were girt, their sandals were on their feet, their staffs were in their hands, and the people of Israel stood hushed and awed and expectant. Before morning broke, they were on their way. The Israelites had gradually assembled in Goshen. They had to leave hastily, but still there was a plan for organizing themselves and moving the multitude. They divided into companies under appointed leaders, and they were off. Almost two million people left the devastated land of Egypt. Who can stand up against the will of God? And you know, when the saints are taken to heaven, this earth will be a devastated land of Egypt also. You know, we can trust God to keep his word in his time. Our part is to keep God's blood on the doorposts of our heart and to sweep out everything that is not compatible with heaven. God not only died, but he rose from the dead, and he lives and intercedes for us. His resurrection is a promise that those who are faithful will also be resurrected. Jesus was the first fruits. He was was only the beginning of the harvest. The rest of the harvest will follow, follow when he comes to take his faithful people on their journey to their heavenly promised land. Everything that Jesus did on that special weekend so long ago was for us, and he wants it to be remembered.